Welcome back to the Ridley Institute podcast for another conversation on Christian faith and discipleship in our secular age. My name is Sam, I'm your host, and this podcast is a resource of the Ridley Institute here at St. Andrew's Anglican Church in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. Welcome back to those of you who are part of the Ridley community. If you're new to our work here, glad you're listening as well. At the Ridley Institute, we believe that solid theological education in and for the local church is critical for good discipleship in our secular age. The church can neither stand firm on the gospel nor minister in the power of the gospel if it is not equipped to persevere in the truths of the gospel. So the subjects that we uh, discuss are subjects, therefore, that bear on life in the trenches uh, for the Christian, and that is particularly the case uh, with our conversation today. I have the pleasure of chatting today with Eric Ortland, lecturer in Old Testament and Biblical Hebrew at Oak Hill Theological College in London. Dr. Ortland has a new book out with InterVarsity Academic here in North America, or Apollo for listeners in the UK. The title is Piercing Leviathan, God's Defeat of Evil in the Book of Job. Dr. Ortland, a very warm welcome to you. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I'm glad to be here. That's a delight to have you. Um, so I've been hoping to have you on the podcast since hearing a series of your talks that you gave on Job at St. Andrew the Great in Cambridge, uh, Stag. Those talks whetted my appetite for more work on Job uh, from your pen or your keyboard. So uh, naturally, I jumped when I saw that uh, your new book on Job had hit the press in the last month or so. So I was thinking, before we dig into this um, difficult book, why don't we step back and help our listeners get situated in the sort of biblical literature that your work deals with? Uh, you talk early on in Piercing Leviathan about how several years ago you were uh, you were teaching and you were struck by the profound pastoral relevance of Old Testament wisdom literature. We're talking here about the books of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. So tell us a bit about what wisdom literature is, what it seeks to do, and why you think it's so pastorally relevant. Sure, of course. So in, in speaking about wisdom literature, you know, we don't want to overplay that category too much. Probably ancient Israelites did not have absolutely rigid genre categories. You know, Genesis through Kings is pretty much a continuous narrative, but it includes what we would call narrative and history and so on. So, so we don't want to see these as airtight categories. And yet, reading Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes, you kind of feel you're, like you're in a slightly different world. Hmm. I understand Proverbs, and in their different way, in different ways, Job and Ecclesiastes, to complement and supplement Mosaic Torah, hmm. um, uh, um, filling in the complexity of life in God's created order with wise instruction in how to live along with the groove of creation in such a way that leads to blessing for you and for other people. Hmm. So, for example, uh, Torah will say, don't bear false witness, which is so crucial. You cannot please God and be a blessing in your community unless you don't bear false witness. But that does not deal with all the really complex, sticky situations we get to in how to speak wisely and blessedly to other people. That is way more complicated. <laughs> Torah will say don't commit adultery, and that's really crucial to having a happy marriage. But sometimes couples don't commit adultery and they don't have a good marriage. So we have Song of Songs that helps lead Israelite teenagers through 
all the beauties and the heartache and, and how scary falling in love can be and so on. So I, I, I think wisdom literature complements God's rules by showing us patterns in how God set up creation to work, which aren't obvious to us. It's not obvious to a lot of people that a soft word turns away anger that can lead to great blessing for us and the people around us. So it's basically wise instruction in living within the complexities of creation. Hmm. So, uh, so Job, Job fits within this, this kind or uh, yeah, this kind of biblical literature, this sure. fulfilling this same kind of um, the same role of drawing out the, uh, some of some of the the, the latent questions and potentialities. Sure, sure. The, okay, all right. So, um, Job famously is a difficult book. <laughs> um, <laughs> so maybe maybe we before we dig in, we could start by. Um, would you mind just giving us a whistle stop tour through the 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 story of the of the book? Sure, sure, of course. And this will be horrifying. So buckle your seatbelt here. <laughs> um, I should have said as well, Sam, in, in answer to your last question, Deuteronomy will really strongly emphasize that uh, obeying God brings, brings blessing, do, disobeying God brings a curse. Hmm. Um, Job builds on that and agrees with Deuteronomy, but it nuances that idea, showing that Job really is blessed for his obedience in the long run, but without contradicting Deuteronomy, it says God reserves the right to interrupt the normal pattern of blessing for obedience for his own reasons, sometimes hmm. mysterious reasons. So it helps us see God's God plays fair with us, and if we stick close to him, our lives really will be better, but that is not mechanical or automatic or a slot machine, and it's important that it not be. Mm. In terms of a flyby of the book, the first two chapters, it, the, the, the devil asks this question, does Job love God for no reason? And it's this horrifying, horrifying question, because Job's life is great. He has, he has an awesome life, and he's an amazing Christian. Men like Job, men and women like Job, deserve have awesome lives, awesome lives in God's universe, you know. Mm. And in order to prove that Job really loves God and is not just a gold digger, God allows Job to absolutely, sorry, God allows Satan to absolutely destroy Job's life. But Job doesn't know it's the devil who did that. Job wrongly, but very understandably, assumes God just stabbed him in the back. And Job loves God. And the thought that God is angry with him for no reason he can think of drives Job crazy. Um, and Job, ter terrifyingly, he starts to ask, I know, he, Job will say, I was not perfect. I confess sin that, that when it was there, but there is nothing in my life that can explain why God clobbered me. So what does that say about God? What kind of person is he really? And Job will continue to believe in God's omniscience and sovereignty and irresistible will, but he will give up on divine goodness. And he enters this horrifying universe where the biggest person in the in the universe is the least trustworthy mm. and yet amazingly mysteriously job will also continue to say if god and i could just talk about this we could work this all out god and i could be friends and my agony would be over god comes along and says a lot of things that help to complicate job's universe and without explaining or demystifying the ordeal movingly job goes to his death never understanding why chapters one to two happen. But he knows, he learns by the end, he is not God's enemy and God is not his enemy. There were other factors involved that God tolerates, but only for a time. And the universe is not a, is not an inner city ghetto. 
Job extrapolates outward from his own ordeal to draw some really terrifying conclusions about God and God's world. And, and God essentially says, Job, if you, if you just look at my world, you, you can see for yourself that the really sinister conclusions you drew about me and my creation just aren't true. And Job agrees, and he humbles himself. And I think by the end, Job says, oh my goodness, I've been, I've been criticizing and attacking the one person who's been my truest friend through all this ordeal when I thought he was my enemy. Hmm. And Job, Job is restored. He's brought back into a life of blessing because he demonstrates so unambiguously he loves God only for God and will stick with God when he's going through hell. And I use that word advisedly. advisedly. Job sitting on the ash heap under what he thinks is the wrath of God is a little Old Testament picture of hell. And he's proved he loves God with no ulterior motive, and so it's safe to give him the secondary blessings again. And Job dies old and full of days, still not knowing why he went through that ordeal. That would be my flyby. And I only talked about a third of the book there. So. <laughs> that, well, that's... Um... Uh, that's that's a, a very helpful five. So we have we've got a we've got a basic sense of the plot of the book. Thank you. Um, obviously, um, or or maybe maybe not obviously for some listeners, the 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 ways in which Job uh, have been read uh, are legion. Um, can t- can you tell us a little bit? about some of the main approaches to Job, um, where, where we tend to kind of see them coming from, what they try to draw out of the book and, and leave as the, the main taste in the mouth of the reader? Yeah, yeah. My sense of the book is that um, I think chapters one and two are pretty clear and are not read in radically diverse ways. And the debate between Job and his friends are read, you know, you read commentaries and they disagree, but I don't think it's that hard to figure out what the friends are saying and what Job is saying. And th- there are passages that are really hard to figure out. I think Job is like the Shakespeare of the Old Testament. <laughs> I don't think even in Elizabethan England, I don't think anyone was saying, you know, reason not the need, our basis beggars are in the poorest things, superfluous or something like that. <laughs> but if you're a native speaker, you can kind of understand what's going on. And mm. I'm not a native speaker of Israelite Hebrew, so it's just hard to know. But you get to God's speeches and it really, really diverges. Mm. Um, evangelical writing tends to say God emphasizes that he is really wise and really powerful, and that's what convinces Job. That's unsatisfying to me for a number of reasons. There's also a recent strain in academic writing on Job that um, this is going to sound really weird, but it takes the book of Job actually not as a successful defense of God's goodness and not even as a failed attempt to defend God's goodness, but actually to demonstrate that God is immoral and a bully and malicious and evil. Mm. And stri- crazy as it sounds, um, you can push that argument pretty far. The book of Job comes close to saying the opposite of what it actually says. Now, for listeners, listeners may have tuned into this because, you know, something really awful happened to them and they are just struggling. They will probably not be interested in that. But for for people who are interested in trying to think those issues through, I deal with them, deal with them at some length in the book. So basically, Sam, I mean, the commentaries I read on Job up to chapter 37, mostly, mostly they don't radically diverge. It gets to God's speeches and they just go all over the place. Hmm. evangelicals tend to say God is really wise God is really powerful that's not satisfying to me there are other 
other readings that not everyone in your audience will be interested in, but you can read the book more if you are. Yeah, yeah. This isn't um, this isn't a remark that shows a, a particular depth of uh, reflection on biblical studies, but that uh, is it, just fine. But it's not <laughs> that that it strikes me that that kind of approach to Job is exactly the kind of thing that we would expect to find in an age dominated by Netflix and Amazon Prime, and you know, cert certain approaches to. Um, to to stories that you know flunk the hero and yeah. Um, yeah and and seem intelligent by going the route of cynicism um, yeah uh, again I'm not I'm not I mean I think you you do something marvelous in the book that we'll hopefully get to but um, yeah right so so let's let's move along um, job throws up several obvious uh, questions right suffering. Uh, spiritual evil, etc. Um, you've already, I think, suggested that there are s maybe some less obvious to, to some of us, but still central themes that are raised by the book of Job. So what what might some of those be? Yeah, th thank you. That's a really good question. And Sam, I almost hesitate to say this, but for the sake of the audience, I really don't um, want to self-promote too much, but this, the book that just came out is more of an academic book. Mm. If people just, I, I, I'm coming, there's another book on Job I have coming out with Crossway in January. And if people just want the straight story, it's much shorter. And it's basically everything pastorally helpful in Job in as simple, as brief and direct a way as I can. So mm. some people may be interested in following more of the rabbit trails and seeing the argument behind what I say. If people just want to get to the point, then come January, that's the book for you. And I'm really not trying to hawk my own wares here, but yeah. the books have two different purposes, and and some people may be interested. And and anyway, let, let me just interject at this point that at the yep. end at the end of our conversation, I'll I'll yep. I will give the whole title of the book and let the listener know when when that's coming out. So, um, yes, thank so you. Folks I, should have their uh, no, not self promotion at all. They're both both helpful resources. All right. Yeah. Thank you. Back to you. Two two so three really important themes. I. I did not expect to say this, but or see this as I wrote. I think Job is maybe one of the most old, joyful books in the Old Testament. <laughs> and it's easy to miss, but I really think it's there. I think that's a, a, an important but not noticed sub-theme. I think the issue of how you speak to inexplicable suffering is all over the book of Job, but maybe one that we don't reflect on as much as we could or should, mm. and what you should and shouldn't say to a modern-day Job. And I think the way the book of Job complicates our cosmology, Job has, Job has such an admirable view of God's greatness and involvement in every detail in his life. He very naturally assumes God was the direct, efficient cause behind my pain. Mm. And it's totally understandable he would make that mistake. And he's 100% wrong. Mm. And a big part of what God is saying is other factors impinged on your life. Job, you thought I was persecuting you for no reason. You've actually been caught up in a war in heaven. Hmm. Um, other personalities are at play, and I'm going to destroy them one day. I tolerate them for now, but I'm going to destroy them one day. And the fact that I tolerate them for now does not make me an evil, uncaring tyrant the way you said I was. And that's really helpful in a Western context. Uh, Sam, if you... Um, oh, I'm going to forget his name. He was a missiologist at, at TEDS in the 80s and 90s. He wrote this... Uh, Oh, it was right there, and I lost it. Um, uh, he wrote a, 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 an article called "The Flaw of the Excluded Middle." Hmm. Paul, something I can't I can't remember. And he talks about how most cultures around the world, 
will have a category for things of ultimate eternal significance, hmm. God and death and judgment, even if they're not Christians, you know. Hmm. They'll have a category for everyday, immediate, empirical reality. And most cultures around the world will have a kind of middle category of spirits and ghosts and demons and, you know, why did my cow die? Why did my daughter get sick? Stuff like that. Hmm. Stuff that's not empirical, but it's not ultimate. Most Western Christians don't have, we just don't, we're like, we kind of know angels are there, but our, our, we tend to exclude the middle. We have a very underdeveloped angelology. Hmm. And in that article, he says Christian missionaries can go overseas and unwittingly promulgate a secular worldview because you've got God up in heaven at the top and you've got material reality obeying impersonal scientific laws. Hmm. And that's their only view of the universe. And the book of Job explodes that and helps us to see the myriads and myriads of other forces out there that we kind of know are there, but we're only vaguely aware of. And that make it really unwise to assume we understand what's going on in the world or going on with our own lives. So I, as a Westerner, I find that really helpful. Yeah. I, you know, I remember I've had lots of friends who have been involved with Libri over the years. Um, yeah. And yeah. I remember one of them, I, I can't remember who it was, though. One, one of them telling me that when Schaefer, Francis Schaefer, used to go around and, you know, give his talks at these Ivy yeah. League universities or wherever— um, yeah. Back in the, would that have been the 60s and 70s? I uh, think so, yeah, yeah. That he would always make a point when he went to these places to um, always make a point of, of mentioning angels, just in case yeah. anybody were, you know, were, was in danger of walking away with the impression that this is just a, you know, an alternative, reasonable way to live. Um, yes. That there was, that there was more. Um, wow. Uh, we could... Um, Man, we could hunker down on that one for a long time. Let's. Sure, uh, sure. I'd love to put a pin in it because I, I want to get to Job's boneheaded friends, <laughs> and I, I use boneheaded <laughs> advisedly and uh, and humbly because I think I, you know you make the point. I think, and as does Christopher Ash and his really wonderful commentary that we um, we Christians often find ourselves, I think, in the shoes of of these, yes. these three friends. I mean, they're, well, they're... maybe you do, Sam, but I never have. I mean, yeah. I don't know what you're talking... I've never resent... No, I'm joking. Do you know, I, did, I didn't sense that in you. <laughs> 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 well, you know, they're, uh, they're... They are so... It's That's what makes Job... No, that's not the only thing that makes Job... It's one of the things that makes Job such a painful read, actually, is yeah. um, how cringeworthy, I think, the, the friends are. I... I, I I, I can identify with them more than I'd like to admit. I mean, they're well-intentioned, but they don't speak to Job in healing and life-giving ways. You know, instead they try to pin Job's suffering on Job, that it's his suffering is a consequence of some hidden sin that he's still clinging to. Um, so I've got two questions about this. One, sure, is, sure. one is more, one is kind of the the, the the theological question. The other is working out the sort of personal implications. So let's get yeah, to the yeah. theological one first. And it has to do. Uh, you already um, uh, tipped your your hand just for a minute earlier uh, on this, but it has to do with how the friends understood um, the way that God works in relationship to his to his creatures. Uh, I think so. Uh, to go back to Christopher Ashes commentary on uh, Job. He, um, in this, it reminds me of Winnie the Pooh. I don't know if you remember reading Winnie the Pooh, where just occasionally a word will come up and it'll be, it'll be capitalized, you know, to take on special significance. Well, uh, so Christopher says, you know, that 
he talks about the Friends theology as their capital S system in, in this Winnie yes. the Pooh way, their, their yes. tidy theological assumption about how God works. And, um, and he says, uh, Christopher says, this system is the default assumption of all of us if we're morally serious. Um, and does this have to do, you didn't use the word earlier, but um, there's something called the, the retribution principle. Does this, yes. have, does this have something to do with that? Yeah, absolutely does. Yeah. And, and this is one of the complex ways that Job engages with the canon and nuances our understanding of how God engages with us. The Bible, the Bible clearly teaches you reap what you sow unambiguously. And it's right for God to run creation that way. It would be unfair of him to do anything else. The, prop, the book of Job, one of the things it's doing is helping us to understand that you don't always reap quickly what you sow, and you don't reap only what you sow. And the friend's mistake is that they assume you reap only what you sow and quickly in immediate, obvious ways. Mm. They, they do not have a category of innocent suffering. If you are suffering, you must have deserved it because you always reap what you sow. Mm. So Christopher Ash is really appropriate, and I really like Ash's commentary. I think it's the best commentary I've read on Job. Him calling it the system with the capital S is appropriate because the friends have this hidebound mechanistic system where all that's going on with the human life, their life goes well, they deserved it. God's blessing them. If it went badly, they deserved it. God is cursing them. Um, the, another way of saying this is that it's true to say you reap what you sow, but it's not true to say that you sow. Oh, sorry, let me. Am I saying that you reap what you sow, but not, not that you sow what you reap? Yeah, I think that's what I want to say. It, it's true to say that blessing brings obedience, but the friends infer backward and say, oh, well, if you're not experiencing blessing, you must have lost your obedience. And that's the crucial mistake. Mm. The book of Job is saying you can be really obedient and God can interrupt your life for his own mysterious reasons. And it's no slur on your moral character. I think a big, maybe the first lesson in the book of Job is epistemological humility and just recognizing how little we know. The debate goes on and on and on. Sam, are you the only person who gets tired reading Job and the Friends? Oh, no. Like, I'm just lagging by the end. I just want God to show up. And But Job and the Friends could talk for 800 chapters and get nowhere close. They, they cannot figure out why God let this happen. They just can't figure it out. Hmm. Um, I can talk. I'm, I'm happy to talk more about the Friends if you want. The book of Job is is very cunning about human psychology and especially religious pharisaical psychology. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, it's natural enough within the book of Job, the very first verse is, you know, blameless and upright, totally awesome Christian, chapter one, verse one, and then chapter two, verse five is Job is really blessed as a result. In chapter one, Job loses all those secondary blessings to obedience. So it's natural for his friends to assume he lost the obedience that was tied to the blessing. That's okay. But when Job honestly says, I am, I'm, I'm, I'm not holding on to, I didn't cheat on my wife or embezzle funds or I just didn't, I'm not perfect, but I, you can't explain this in relation to me. Mm -hmm. You got to explain it in relation to God. The friends have a chance to say, oh, okay, something more mysterious is going on here. Job, let's sit with you and comfort you and encourage you, not blame you, not torture you, not, pro and we'll just sit with you and see what God does. Instead, they double down and they say, no, Job, you must have done something because the only reason people suffer is if, is if they did something bad to deserve it. But if you think about it, that's a very comforting worldview and universe. 
if every sin is punishing is punished quickly, and if when people are hurting and heartbroken, if they did something to deserve it, that's comforting. If someone can suffer for no reason, that's really troubling because it could happen to us. So, and it's a, and it's especially seductive because it's a way essentially of comforting ourselves and mm-hmm. quarantining ourselves from the pain of others by telling ourselves we're morally superior to them. So it'll never happen to us. And I have found, Sam, this temptation is so sneaky. I was talking with a really dear friend, known her for decades, went through this horrible, horrible divorce, horrible custody battle and everything. And tears are coming down her face as we're talking about this. I'm trying to comfort her. And the thought came to me, you know, maybe you should have thought about who you married before you married that guy. And as soon as I thought, I thought, I am going to shut my mouth right now and not say that because that is blaming the victim. I'm trying to reduce my own sense of discomfort before my sister's, my, my sister in the faith, not my actual sister, hmm. before this other Christian's pain by blaming them for it. And I'm, I'm unwilling to weep with those who weep. It's, it's really a sneaky temptation. Mm-hmm. You know, so the, actually you just anticipated my next, my next question, which was the more personal question about these three boneheaded yeah. friends, you know, at, um, you know, what motivates them to cling to their capitalist system to the point of actually, God says, misrepresenting him and contradicting God's yeah. estimate of Job, which, by the way, is one thing, uh, just t- time out here for a moment. So one yeah. thing which your book makes really clear is the glowing terms uh, in which the Lord speaks of Job. Um, yeah. So is, is it only in the early chapters we do get that, don't we, in chapter one and chapter two, that Job's integrity actually is is put beyond all doubt by the Lord himself. We we, we absolutely do. When the Lord says there's no one like him in all the earth, mm. that phrase elsewhere in the Old Testament is most mostly, not always, but mostly used to describe God himself. That's, that's a pretty good recommendation coming yeah. from the Almighty. You don't get it toward the end, but I, I don't think God's heart changes toward Job in the slightest. God doesn't tell Job because he can't endanger the results of the ordeal. The whole point is, will God stick with, sorry, the whole point of the ordeal is, will Job stick with God when he has every earthly reason to give up on God? And when, even when God allows himself to become mysterious to Job and Job proves that he does. But I think part of the, part of the moral of Job is you, you have no idea To speak anthropomorphically, you have no idea the shining, beaming pride that your Heavenly Father has in you when you suffer and weep and you stick with Him anyway, and you say, the Lord took from me, blessed be His name anyway. You have no idea how God's heart warms to you, and He won't let you see it because the dark storm clouds are Mm -hmm. are over there. And you're you're, like, Job, you're going to be saying, like, I just wish I could talk to God again. Where did He go? Where did He go when I need Him most? Mm -hmm. But, but how God appears to you is not the state of his heart toward you. Hmm. And, and Job makes that really clear. That's um, a, please go on. So, sorry, go ahead, Sam. Go, go ahead. Uh, no, no, no. I, well, I was going to anything else you wanted to add on that point. Oh, many, many things. But you wanted to work back to the friends. So we, we can go back there again or we can move on wherever you want to. Well, actually, so I've, I've got many more questions. So maybe, sure. so maybe we can keep moving on. So we get through, um, you know, we get through these interminable uh, conversations with the friends. They utterly failed. Um, uh, Elihu, is that how you pronounce his name? Uh, yes. Elihu. Yeah. Uh, Eli, Elihu comes... Uh, s- seems that he fails 
as as well. Uh, I think this I think is, so. Yeah. Um, some some variants about this, but you, but we think we think he fails. Yes. Um, and now we get to we get to the end of uh, the book where. It, so I think yeah. one of the things that Elihu, this you know sort of mysterious fourth guy, he he turns up. Um, Job has Job has de- has demanded uh, you know that the Lord break silence and, and so on and um, yes. And one of the things I think that Elihu does is that when God finally does show up in in chapter thirty eight, um, it, it hasn't been the case that you know Job says, "Answer me, God," and then God yes. comes wringing his hands, right? To that's right. That's right. Um, so let's move to those to chapter thirty eight towards the end of the book um, yes. to God's two speeches because I think this is where you really hunker down and, and do such marvelous yeah. work. So God's two t- speeches in response uh, to Job. So by chapter thirty eight, this is a, a you cite someone else with this quote and it's just striking. Job has depicted God as a uh, this is the quote a merciless hunter, an insidious spy, a capricious destroyer. And a sinister ruler. Um, that's the end of the quote. So my question is, what surprises uh, you, Eric, about God's response to Job when he finally yeah. shows up? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that's a great question. Many things surprise me. The first is the the tone of absolute gentleness with which God engages with Job. Mm. So who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? So words without knowledge means means basically, Job, you, you didn't quite know what you were talking about when you said all that horrible stuff. Job, Job says stuff, Job is so admirable through the debate. If I went through what he went through, I would curse God and die. I mean, I would not have made it. He's really admirable. He also says the most blasphemous stuff about God in the book. Now, he wouldn't say it if he didn't love God so much. And if he didn't value rightness before God, he feels like God has put him in the wrong, you know, mm-hmm. not for a good reason. But anyway, Job has been doing all, and, and all God says is, Job, you've been speaking words without knowledge. He's, it's like, Job, did you really know what you were saying? He, Job darkens counsel. I think the counsel there means God's royal policies by which he administers his world, his plan for creation. And Job has been saying God runs the world in this completely random, chaotic way, where when innocent people die, God just laughs and thinks it's funny. In chapter 16, Job says, God's using me for target practice. That's literally what he says. So God says, Job, you've been darkening counsel. You've been darkening and obscuring the way I run the world, saying it's horrible. It's actually much, much better. Now, I look at that. And I think God could would be justified showing up saying, Job, who do you think you are saying I'm some moral monster when I, I'm the one sustaining you in your being this entire, like, I think God would be justified with a much harsher response. And all he basically says is, Job, um, if you think for yourself, you could see for yourself, stuff you've been saying about me is not true. Did you really know what you're talking about when you said all that stuff? Really? That's an extraordinarily gentle response. Mm-hmm. And then the first the first thing he says, he, were you there when I founded the earth? Now, that's not a sarcastic put down. God is not trying to score points against Job for a lot of reasons. First of all, no human being would feel shamed or demoralized or humiliated for not being there when Genesis 1 happened. So he's God is not saying, hey, are your muscles as big as mine or something like that? He's not <laughs> right. competing, Job, you know? Yeah. Um, um, also, in wisdom texts, a teacher asking a student question is a normal means of passing on wisdom. Mm. And it's not meant to humiliate the student. It's meant to help the student grow. 
So, so we, we can read this as Job, let's, let's engage. And I'm, I'm going to help you understand the world better. And, and he says when, um, you know, when I founded the earth and all the more songs, all, all the, uh, the stars shouted for joy and the sons of God sang together. Mm. It's the most amazing, striking image of beings higher than Job bursting into the hallelujah chorus. Mm. When Job has been saying, it's so easy when you're hurting to see the whole world through the prism of your own pain. Mm. In a grief observed, C.S. Lewis, it, it, it was at one point he says, now I see how God really is. Deceive yourself no longer. And that's what Job has been saying. Like, oh, that's the real story of the universe. Oh, okay. And God is saying, Job, my, my world is so much happier than you've been saying. Beings higher than yourself were singing for joy when I put it together. And are you going to curse it into nothingness like you did in chapter 3? So that's surprising. Uh, what was the question again? What, what surprised Job? Yeah. Um, I, I, I think a third thing that surprised him. So God starts talking about Leviathan. Surprise which, God. Right, right. Um, yeah, which uh, is not a crocodile. And that's, again, our, our impoverished cosmology in the West. We hear, we hear about this big, fire-breathing, scaly, toothy monster in the ocean, and we think, uh, closest I can think of is a crocodile. And it's not a crocodile, because crocodiles don't breathe fire and they don't live in the ocean. But for an ancient Semite, that would have been a perfectly appropriate image for cosmic evil and supernatural chaos that isn't bigger than God, but that's bigger than human beings. And the Bible talks, Bible and un, other ancient Semitic texts talk that way all the time. Now, Job knows about Leviathan. He mentions in the chapter three, but God gives him a guided close-up tour of Leviathan, a fang and fire and scale. I like to picture it like God, God and Job, I don't think this happened literally, but it's like God and Job are talking. God puts his arm around Job and says, Job, listen, you think I clobbered you. I'm going to show you the real enemy. And he looks out at the ocean and the water starts to bubble. And this massive, writhing, scary, kraken, dragon-like figure come, bubbles up from the surface and says, Job, look, you see that? You see that? That, that There are other powers in the universe that wreak chaos mm-hmm. on human life. And I've got that thing on a tight leash. And there's coming a day I'm going to get out my sword and scour every last inch of evil from my creation. Mm-hmm. And Job, you're going to get to see it. And oh, that is going to be a great day. Mm-hmm. And Job, that's your enemy. I tolerate it for now. And and, and I think I, I think basically God is saying to Job, I'm the only person who really knows how much you suffered. You thought I just clobbered you as just being a bully. You've actually been caught up with an adversary so fearsome. It would scare you if you could see it. I like to picture Job like his eyes are wide as he's seen Leviathan for the first time. He's back in a way. It's just it's like, you know, giant squid from 20,000 leagues under the sea or something. (laughs) And 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 Job is realizing I did not realize how much chaos there was in the world. Mm. And that makes God look even better. That God is the one person who sees that chaos up close and who still describes creation in an utterly positive, happy way in the book of Job. God is the one character out of all the book who sees the cre- creation most soberly and realistically and is still the happiest about his world continuing. So I think I think that blew Job's mind. And I think that is so much more than just saying God talks about his power and wisdom. Mm. That is so much more. If, if God only talks about power and wisdom, that's not enough to explain Job's utter about face and his utter self-abasement. And just saying, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes because I've been criticizing my Savior. Hmm. So I, so forgive me if this is a slightly tortured analogy, but I, when, when, um, 
when, when in your discussion of Leviathan in the book, it, it reminded me of that bit where C.S. Lewis, uh, is it in the weight of glory? You've, where you've never met a mere mortal, you know? Um, yes. Uh, and it, if listeners are familiar with that piece, essentially Lewis says, you're, you're every human being that you speak to is either a, a person destined for, you know, infinite glory, um, you know, or, or, you know, or the opposite, you know? Yeah. Um, Yeah. And, and so the connection for me is um, it, it, it really just, listeners can't see my hands, but it, it, it just removes the, the kind of the blinders. It makes the picture so much bigger uh, so that on, on the one hand, I mean, so you, you might start the book of, you might come to the book of Job having a sense that something is off in the world and that God is kind mm. of good. Mm. By the end of it, you've got a sense that um, actually there's this um, her- horrific chaos monster on the loose that's, mm. you know, far more vicious and terrifying than than we, we dare to imagine. And yet... Creation, we can rejoice in it because we are in our father's. Uh, we're kids in the in the garden, you know, uh, facing. Yeah. I remember. I remember hearing a, a talk at the Faraday Institute in Cambridge where they they likened Dennis Alexander or somebody likened creation to to that. We we don't we don't we don't conduct ourselves in creation as if there's a monster lurking under. It under every bush where mm-hmm. we, we recognize that there are threats and so on and dangers, but in the same way that, you know, I'm not going to go to the place where I know there might be a black widow in the bushes over there, or, you know, by the bricks, mm-hmm. uh, I'm not going to stick my hand in that wet hole where there might be a snake, you know? Um, and sometimes they might, you know, you're going to get, you're going to get stung and so on. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't mean to make that sound trite or certainly not to put yes. Job like ordeals in that, in that way, just to yeah. make the point that, um, there is both a far more serious um, reckoning with with evil and a profound sense of God's good caretaking and yeah 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 um, what 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 would bog yeah you yeah, yeah I absolutely agree with you what boggles my mind about Job is that it is it is God is more realistic about what is wrong with this world before the redemption of all things than any other character in the book and he is simultaneously more joyful. But the, the, um, the one person who most clearly sees what's wrong with the world is the one person happiest that it should continue. I have some vague sense. I mean, Sam, I, I don't want to, you know, be triggering for anyone. But but today, children have been abused. In God's world, mm-hmm. women have been raped. People have been murdered. Um, unborn infants have been slaughtered. Christians have been thrown in jail. Um Lies have been told on massive scales. I have some vague sense, you know, children have been sexually trafficked this day. I have some vague sense that that is going on. The one person who sees all that evil up close and sees that horrifying spiritual malignancy standing behind it that I have some vague sense of, but I can't see it, Hmm. is the one person when this, it's it's not nighttime where you are, it it is where I am, who's saying, when the sun rises in London tomorrow, the angels are going to be singing because they are so happy. And that's not, that's irrespective of the eschaton <laughs> yeah. and the eternal weight of glory that our sufferings are, our light momentary tribulation is working for us. God's joy in creation right now. And if that's true, then Christians can be the most realistic and the most sober people about what's wrong with the world and the most courageous and joyful, knowing that I might have to bury one of my children tomorrow. 
No, I don't expect to, but I know that that could happen. And yet some, I can be utterly realistic and utterly joyful at the same time. I don't think I'm there yet. I can kind of see that horizon <laughs> in the book of Job. Yeah. Um, I don't think I'm there yet, but it absolutely, it makes me feel dizzy when, when I read God's speeches. Hmm. I, have, I, I mean, it, it, it is why Job is a, a terrifying book. I was reflecting on yeah. this with, with my wife the other day. I, the, you know, the, 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 book of, the book of Job's is playing for keeps. I mean, it, in a way, God's... I'm so sorry to interrupt you, Sam. Proverbs no. says, whenever someone interrupts, it's a shame and a disgrace. I've been shameful and disgraceful. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but it's important, that people, it's important that people hear that the book of Job is playing for keeps. And in a way, God's speeches make the world worse. In a way, God is saying to Job, there's more evil out there than you know. Hmm. Leviathan is worse than you could ever imagine. So, yeah, it's really, really... But anyway, I'm so sorry, Sam. I will be quiet and let you know. No, I'm, 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 I'm glad. Uh, I'm, I'm, I, would, I would rather hear you address these things than me address <laughs> these things. Um, if we can, we just got a, a, a few more minutes left. And there sure, are sure. two questions that, are, that I'd really love to... Well, really kind of three that I'd, I'd love to, sure. to kind of um, draw to a close with. So... Um, let me see here. Um, so the first of the last questions, yes. um, following on the, the kind of implications, um, I'm thinking for, you know, lay folks in the church, um, just yeah. people working through their everyday discipleship, um, as, as well as um, particularly leaders in the church who may be, who may be listening. Um, yeah. How does the book of Job uh, grind a new set of lenses for Christians in the midst of suffering, and I think, yeah, well, what, what 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 errors or temptations does it help us to stave off, and what new way does it open for us? Yeah, yeah, that, that's such a great question. I really like that phrasing. Grind a new set of lenses. I think I, I think for the most part, as Christians, we're very well available. That some we suffer when we sin, we suffer for that, and God allows suffering for spiritual growth. We all know the New Testament passages, James one, and all those that talk about that. Those are utterly valid precious biblical truths, you know. What what Job helps us to see is that sometimes suffering has nothing to do with sin, because Job hasn't sinned, and it has nothing to do with improving you spiritually, because Job's already a mature Christian. There's nothing lacking in Job's, you know, the virtue lists in Paul and First Peter, Job, Job has all, he's not perfect, but he has all those already. His suffering doesn't have anything to do with that. And we just, we need to have the category of wisely discerning and knowing when to say to someone, Maybe we don't, maybe we say it, maybe we don't, but, but we, the new lens that we have is this person's suffering has, God is, it's not because they did something wrong. God is not trying to teach them a lesson. He's not trying to grow them spiritually. Um, something much deeper, more agonizing, more terrifying, and more beautiful and more profound is going on. A Job-like ordeal is one where God is fitting us for heaven and sealing us in the only kind of relationship with God that will save us. Hmm. Because he's not just a Job. When Job proves he loves God for with no ulterior motive, he doesn't secretly love the blessings more. If God takes all those away, he will bless God's name anyway. That's not just showing what's inside what was inside Job's heart all along. When Job says that, he is sealed in that kind of relationship. I use the analogy in the book of marriage. When I, you say your marriage vows, your relation you don't love your spouse anymore, but your relationship is externally different after you say that. And when God allows you to really, when God gives you good reason to give up on him and in sackcloth and through tears, you say, God, the Lord really took from me. Blessed be his name anyway. 
and you say, I want to be in a relationship with God for God, Hmm. you are sealed in the only kind of relationship that will make you happy in heaven. You receive the outcome of your faith, and those words deliver you into a whole new level of reality with God. And almost the last thing Job says is, now my eyes see you. Um, You will be able to receive God in a way that you never could when your life is going really well. And I think God is going to have to allow Job like ordeals at some point for each one of us. Because otherwise, we're not. he's fitting our souls for eternity. When every secondary blessing falls away, I'm not going to be married to my wife in heaven. She will still be so precious to me. But men and women are not given in marriage in the eschaton. Um, there's coming a time when every secondary blessing fall away and God will be all in all. And if what I really love is having a nice family and a relatively pain-free body and a nice job and getting on podcasts and stuff, and that's what I really love, I'm going to be bored in heaven. So my, our loving Heavenly Father will occasionally interrupt his normal policy of utter generosity in spiritual blessings and earthly secondary blessings in order to seal us in a real relationship with him. And there's a terrible dignity. I don't know, Sam, I mean, it's scary to think about. It's really sobering to think about. But there's a, a really awesome dignity that comes from that, that God takes me that seriously. And he, he doesn't treat me like a five-year-old forever. You know, Abraham's great ordeal, it doesn't, it's not the first thing he has to go through in his life. But there's an odd dignity to God asking Abraham to trust him that much. Yeah. Um, and it's just another of the ways that Job is, is ennobling and unsettling all at once. Yeah. Do you know... I, I would actually love to conclude the conversation there because I think that um, my my other questions would cheapen uh, <laughs> would cheapen <laughs> what you've just said, and I I think that 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 point needs to be left ringing in our in our ears. Okay. Uh, so um, then I, let's draw our conversation. Sadly, I would love to continue this. Uh, but let's draw the conversation to a close. Let me commend a uh, good listener to you in the warmest possible terms, Eric Ortland's new book on Job. Uh, and I want to let you know also, if this conversation has seemed uh, at times maybe a bit technical to you, um, as Dr. Ortland said, he's got a new book expected to be published with Crossway uh, in January 2022, entitled Suffering Wisely and Well, The Grief of Job and the Grace of God. So if piercing Leviathan is a bit technical or if, or if you simply want to linger on its implications and consequences, then be sure to take note of the forthcoming book with Crossway. Dr. Ortland, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me, Sam. I've enjoyed this a lot. It's been such a pleasure. Uh, if you enjoyed the chat, please leave a review. And if you have topics you'd like to see addressed, do please email them to podcast at ridleyinstitute.com. Uh, the coming year, as I've said, is mapped out, but we'd love to hear your ideas as we plan for the future. Uh, finally, a word on things to come. You can join me again on October 31st, aka Reformation Day, for the debut of a new series hosted here on the Ridley Institute podcast, the title of which Uh, will be the New Parker Society. Um, As some, but by no means all listeners may know, the Parker Society Library was a a 19th century collection of significant works that shaped the course of the English Reformation during the 16th century. Uh, These were works that uh, fed and fueled gospel-minded Anglicans for centuries. Um, And it's a pity, therefore, that their authors, men like William Tyndale and Nicholas Ridley, John Bradford and John Jewell, 
uh, have fallen by the wayside for many in the evangelical tradition. So every month, join me for a deep dive into a key work of the Parker Society Library. I'll be joined by two good friends, Alice Solio Evans and Jake Griesel. Alice has her thumbs in various pies at the Ecclesiastical History Society and the Church Society in the UK. Jake is currently a postdoctoral research fellow at George Whitfield College in Cape Town, South Africa, and um, together we'll be introducing or reintroducing these pivotal texts of the uh, Anglican evangelical tradition. In the meantime, thanks for listening. I'm Sam Forniker, and this has been the Ridley Institute Podcast. <laughs>